Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 165 of the show and is August the 2nd, 2023, as I record this. In this episode, I talk to my old friend Jared Kirby, who is a fight director and stage and screen combat instructor at the New York Combat for Stage and Screen. He's a stuntman on shows such as Law and Order, The Equalizer, Blue Bloods and Gotham. And we talk about how Jared got interested in stage combat and the most dangerous stunt he has ever done. Jared is also a maestro d'arme with the Martinez Academy, editor of the first published translation of Capoferro and of the republication of Angelo's The School of Fencing, and also of Vincentio Saviolo's Of Honor and Honorable Quarrels. He also republished one of my favorite books in the entire world, McBain's The Expert Swordman's Companion, and he has co-authored Staging Shakespeare's Violence. He also owns a copy of Capoferro from 1610, and we geek out extensively about the differences between our two copies. He was one of the founders and organizers of the International Swordplay and Martial Arts Convention, which was my first international gig back in 2001, which morphed into CombatCon, which he continues to run. Jared very kindly gives a shout out to my Sword People social media platform. If you haven't yet joined, then you need to go to swordpeople.com to do so. And I should mention that Jared's main claim to fame is back in the old days uh, when he came over to train with the Dawn Dueler Society, which I was a founder of. The only way to get full membership of the society was to challenge an existing full member and defeat them in a duel. And Jared first challenged me at Small Sword and I beat him. We fought again with long swords and he did eventually beat me 5-4 in a long sword duel. So... Um, he earned his place in the Dawn Duelist Society by defeating me with a longsword. So that's coming up in the interview section. I've spent the last couple of weeks editing like mad on the new Abrazzare course and taking my eldest daughter on a road trip. You can guess which one of those two is the more important. Um, the course is going splendidly. I've got about half the material edited and uploaded to Teachable and we should be good to launch at the end of this month. So save your pennies, there will be a launch coming soon. The road trip was a fantastic experience. Um, my daughter and I went up to Scotland to visit my mum for a couple of days, then we went to Edinburgh for two nights, and then down to York for a night, and then home. Obviously, I can't put photographs into a podcast, that wouldn't work, um, but I have put some photographs from the trip in my newsletter this week, so check that for pictures of both Edinburgh and York. Now, the really cool thing about, I mean, it's a beautiful old town. It's a, I've never been there before, and I was utterly delighted by the medieval old towniness of it and the extraordinary York Minster, which is this gigantic medieval cathedral. We went up the tower, 275 steps, great fun, fantastic views. It's, it's the only cathedral I know of that has a depiction of a peasant's duel between a chap called Ralph and another chap called Bessing, um, which is shown in a stained glass window. And it's very, very difficult to see it in the cathedral itself. You really have to kind of crane your head up and look for it. So I've put a photograph in the newsletter with a circle around where it is in the window because I did eventually find it. Um, 
I've also put a decent picture of it in the newsletter. It's the same duel that uh, I discuss with Dr. Ariella Elmer in our podcast interview for episode, I think, 100. After we renumbered all the episodes, yes, I think she's now episode 100. As you can probably tell, I'm a little bit tired from the trip, but I need to get, get this recorded and out in due time so the lovely Katie can get it uploaded everywhere it needs to go to go out on time on Friday. So without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Jared Kirby, who is a fight director, stage and screen combat instructor at the New York Combat for Stage and Screen, a stuntman on shows such as Law and Order, The Equalizer, Blue Bloods and Gotham, Maestro d'Army with the Martinez Academy, editor of the first published translation of Capoferro and of the republication of Angelo's The School of Fencing and of Vincentio Saviolo's Of Honour and Honourable Quarrels. He also republished McBain's The Expert Swordman's Companion and has co-authored with Seth Dewar, Staging Shakespeare's Violence. He was one of the founders and organisers of the International Swordplay and Martial Arts Convention, my first international gig back in 2001, which morphed into CombatCon, which he continues to run. Of course, his greatest claim to fame is that in the year 2000, he beat me in a longsword duel to win full membership of the Dawn Duelist Society. And what could possibly top that? So, Jared, without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. <laughs> it's nice to see you. Uh, just a bit of background for the listeners. Jared and I are obviously old friends and we you know, talk on the phone about once a year or so. So this is sort of like a, the continuation of a two and a half decades long conversation. So we'll try and make it, you know, accessible to the lay person. I know. Uh, so my first question. So much, we both had so much hair back then. <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, all right. So my first question, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, in the New York City area. Okay. And what, what brought you there? Um, well, uh, if we go back uh, to when we first met, I uh, had actually moved to Scotland to uh, train with uh, Paul and the Don Duelist Society and um, get some actual training because uh, Tim Rizicki and I had been kind of playing in Minneapolis for years because um, he had met y'all back in, I think, 96. Something like that. I remember, right? Yeah, and then when he came home, uh, he brought me a sword from Scotland. What a um, nice man. I thought so too. And <laughs> it probably took me like 15 years to realize it was actually kind of selfish because he wouldn't have had anybody to play with if he didn't bring me a sword. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> and I'm like, but I, I, got it. I still have it. I can, I can pull it out. It was the most beautiful thing in the world. And really, it's just an Italian foil guard with an epee blade slapped together. Oh, and, God. like, we look at it now and go, oh, what is that? And I'm like, it's a precious memory. Like, Yeah, he, and, and he, 25 years ago, that was what we had. Yeah. And, and then to boot, he hand-stitched a leather wrap around this crappy plastic Italian foil grip. Bless <laughs> <laughs> him. I love that thing. And um, so, yeah, so we had been playing around, um, but, uh, you know, you, it's r really not an art you can teach yourself. 
uh, you need teachers. And so that's one of the reasons that I moved to Scotland to, to study Al- this. Although, although those teachers had actually taught themselves. Like Paul and I taught ourselves all of this. Yeah. Yeah. It, so in that way, it's not like I was going, it wasn't this idea of, at that time, it wasn't this idea of, oh, I have to go seek out masters and all this. Mm-hmm. I just needed people who knew more than me. Yeah, uh, it Because does I, I had run into my wall, my personal limitations, and realized I wasn't getting any better. And uh, so I knew there were people in Scotland that knew more, and this is pre- really the internet you know we were yeah. just all getting started on the wmaw yahoo group uh in 95 i think and so <clears throat> off to to europe i went and thank god i did because got to meet you and gareth and paul and all the boys and gals and we had amazing times and did okay. stupid now, things we're, and <laughs> we're, we're gonna get we're going to return to what we got up to back in the 90s in our foolish younger yeah. days. Um, but what <laughs> took you to New York? So um, it's a, Scotland's the important part of that because yeah. um, the uh, 99 Patty Crean event brought people uh, to Edinburgh. They hosted the event yeah. there. And that's what brought uh, uh, Maestro Martinez and uh, Maestro Costa Martinez over amongst other people. And that was the first time that I met them. And but was it um, really? Huh. Yeah, because I, I remember um, I remember that sort of Paddy Cream period oh, uh, where yes. we had a whole Sorry, bunch of second time extra sword people. Yeah. Okay, so where was the first yeah. time? Um, I gotta hold on. Ninety nine. No. Yes, it was the second time. I think I had met them at the symposium in New York in that January. Oh, um, right, yeah. Just real briefly. Um, but they definitely did not like me. Um, <laughs> they don't like <laughs> me either, so don't worry, you're in good company. <laughs> it was, well, I mean, it's, it's a, I was a very big personality back then. Um, I mean, oh, Jack, that might be a off. polite way of saying. <laughs> <laughs> I've mellowed, I've mellowed. Um, and so I uh, definitely, yeah, I met them there. And um, so, yeah, they came over for the Patty Crean event. And that was the next time that I met them. But I had never gotten to work with them. I'd never learned anything from them. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, the New York thing was an exhibition. Uh, and right. so I got to see stuff there. And uh, really, we went because Paul was there. So Tim and I drove out with a few people and wanted to see him. And um, so, yeah, it was at that Patty event that I got to do a Spanish rapier class with uh, the Martinez's. And, you know, this was at the end of my work visa being up in in, uh, Scotland anyway. So I was going to I'd been thinking about moving to New York as an actor. I'd been thinking about moving back to Minneapolis. And I took that class with the Martinez's and at the end of the class, I shook their hand and I said, thank you. This is amazing. I'm going to move to New York and train with you and walked away. Let this be a lesson to the listener. 
right? If you go and you get a class that really rocks your world, it may have long-term consequences. Like you <laughs> move across the country to some other place. And like, like I have a, a, a student in um, Helsinki who came to Helsinki for one of my long, sort of week-long seminar things in about, uh-huh. must have been 2010 or something, and met a girl. And they're now oh. married with two kids in Helsinki. So this kid from Singapore, I say kid, oh. he, was a, he was a youngish man then and he's a still a fairly young man now. Um, <laughs> yes, that, that one seminar, he's been, in, he's been in Finland for the last, I think, 15 years or so. Thanks for showing up to one class. <laughs> you never this, know. It's a dangerous thing showing up to historical swordsmanship <laughs> events. It really is. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> okay. So um, now you've been publishing books and you seem to have specialized in um, producing sort of republications and translations of, should we say, 16th and 17th century works. Is that a fair... I mean, you could say that. Um, I would say that I have always pursued my passions with zeal. And so there really isn't a through line so much as a, wow, this is cool. And I'm going to keep digging into this and I'm going to Mm -hmm. hate myself for it. And I'm going to get it done. Right. So the Capafero translation actually started. I was working on that in the early 90s. Um, no, mid 90s. Uh, because I had started off in stage combat. And then as I started to get into historical fencing, Capafero was one of the few names that both worlds knew. And yeah. I was like, wow, this man's amazing. And. If he's got that kind of of legacy, I want to be able to understand what he was saying. And then as I started to get more into it, I was like, wait a second. Now, his contemporaries were translated in, in that century into other languages. And yet nobody has ever translated Capafero into a foreign language. What is up with that? Wow, it's crazy. You know, yeah. Meanwhile... Every, you know, even in sport fencing worlds, which I know very little about, but the I'd be in conversations, they would know Capafero uh, and maybe not his contemporaries. So that just kept driving me to want to, to get a translation done. So I started when I was in university going to the Italian master's thesis students and saying, not only would this be an amazing thesis, I'll pay you. I mean... I didn't have much money, so maybe it was like 50 bucks or something. <laughs> but I was like, I'll give you something uh, to do this as your project. And I uh, had meetings with four or five different people because they thought it was a great idea. Then they looked at the text and went, yeah. oh, no. And I was like, what? And that's when I realized I wasn't asking them to translate Italian. I was asking them to translate Shakespearean Italian. It is written the way Shakespeare is written. It's that time period. Yeah, uh, and also Capofero is an astonishingly bad writer in many respects. I mean, Mm. there are Italian sources of that period, Giganti, for example, that is a breeze to translate. Um, But Capofero is twisty. He seems seems (laughs) to think that no sentence is complete without at least six (laughs) subclauses. (laughs) 
you want to get the whole understanding. <laughs> no, yeah. no. So yeah, I just, uh, it was interesting understanding that. And then, um, I was like, all right, we're going to have to do, um, we're going to have to do something. So I actually started, um, do you remember, I think it was called the Historical Fencing Translation Project, HFTP. Yeah, style, something right? like that. I remember I backed it because I've got, I've got yeah. a, I've got the, um, the sort of, what do you call it? The spiral bound photocopy of the translation, which is what us backers got because we got yeah. the translation and then that got published by, I think, Greenhill Books. Yep. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, a bunch of people, like you, <laughs> contributed $100 each to raise the money to pay a professional translator. Um, unfortunately, uh, it was awful. Uh, yes. The money got spent up on that awful translation based on really bad advice from uh, the wrong people. And... Uh, that landed me with a book contract already uh, expecting uh, a book uh, yeah. and a translation that couldn't even get the numbers right at certain points, missed entire paragraphs. Um, oh my God, yeah. And left me up a creek without a paddle and, um, <clears throat> and when asked for it to be fixed, was threatened with lawsuits for defamation. Wow. So... That left me in a horrible position, and that is when uh, Ray and Jeanette stepped up to help save me. I mean, there's so they, they sort of they took the monstrously crap one and they tied it up into something that could be published. Oh no, no, it was so bad we threw it away. Oh, so um, they just retranslated it entirely. We, yeah, um, yeah. I sat down at that table with them, and we started a brand new translation. Um, when we got through the first translation of it, then we started again. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know why they put up with me. I really don't because I had this religious zealous to keeping every word possible. They're like, no, we can just yeah. say this. I'm like, no, you can't because I don't want any interpretation. I want this to be a boring, literal translation of exactly what Capaferro said. Which is actually impossible. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, <laughs> and but that's yeah, why it's, I bring that up in the introduction to the Capaferro book. Yeah. It is impossible, and I wanted us to do as, as close as humanly possible. Yeah, I, honestly, you know, when I translate, for example, Fiore, I, um, I, I lean towards that end of the spectrum. So, like, if he puts the clauses in a certain order and it's not bad English to put them in the same order, that's what I'll do. And mm -hmm. if a phrase is repeated in the text when it shouldn't be, I repeat it in the text with a footnote saying this is obviously a scribal error. But it's like, mm -hmm. I want it so that someone reading it as far as possible can go word by word, phrase by phrase through the original and yeah. see it in English and match it up and go, oh, okay. Uh He's translating this phrase as this phrase and, and with absolute minimum um, sort of rephrasings. Because mm -hmm. often the phrasings are, 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 are almost nonsensical. Um, well, uh, or, or, I, or, they're, or they're, 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 they're some kind of um, colloquialism that, like, like Vadi has one uh, where, 
I'll throw you to the ground. Um, literally, you literally translate it like saying hello, commandeiro un ave, which means, you know, basically in the time it would take me to say an ave Maria, which means huh? extremely quickly. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, so I you know, love if you were to meet for coffee, yeah, yeah. You know, if you and I were going to meet for coffee and I was a bit late, I'd say, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be there in an ave. Right? Uh, that's that's yeah, the expression. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's that, but you know, you have to, you have to translate what it actually says and then footnote what it means in that sort of situation, yeah. I think. So that the reader was, can see what the person said. There were several of those in Capifero that I loved yeah, going loads. down that rabbit hole, you know, mm. the casting, the visual rays. And then I went down yes. this whole research to understand how they thought people saw in the 17th century. It was anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Newton hadn't been born yet, and so he hadn't figured out the science of optics. <laughs> but uh, I love those rabbit holes. Those are some of my favorite memories. Uh, yeah. And also, yeah, because it was a break. Um, yeah, so basically we went through, we translated it three times. Um, and we got up and we did every play and uh, made sure that it all worked. And then uh, got that, that translation out. Um, but I really would have been lost without Ray and Jeanette doing most of the sure. work. And then on top of that, they let me, my name is all over the book. I take all the credit. Um, yeah. Again, right. don't know why they put up with me. <laughs> but, but this maybe explains why um, you then went with Angelo's School of Fencing, the 1787 English translation done in the period um, of the 1763 original in French. And then Vincenzo Saviello's Of Honor and Honorable Quarrels, which is already in English. And then McBain's Expert Source and Companion, already in English. <laughs> so again, these are all like, um, if I'm being honest, the Angelo mm -hmm. book exists because I needed an excuse to buy an original. Ah, that's a good reason. I wanted an original and I was yeah, like, you know, I need an original if we're going to have the art Right. Which actually never manifested. I didn't buy an original till years after the book was published. And we were able to get the rights to images. So, um, but, you know, I love the book and I love what Jenna was able to add to it. Um, mm -hmm. and especially the appendixes. And then uh, Saviolo only happened because Greenhill, uh, uh, Michael uh, is... Amazing man. Uh, love working with him. But he wanted me to write a book about dueling. He was like, we want to put out like a coffee table book about dueling. And I was like, well, why would I do that? There are tons we could just republish. You right. don't need me. And yeah. I was like, hmm. But you know what is interesting? The first English code duello. The first code duello written yeah. in English um, now that one's interesting and it's an interesting guy that I'd been researching anyway, right? Right. Cause why are we here? We're here because the princess bride, if we're Pretty being much. honest, right? Yeah. I wanted to know what Benetti's defense was. And that yeah. was some of my first historical research only to find out there's no Benetti's defense that we know of. So well, yeah, I mean, he was a fencing master, but there's no record of his actual method. Yeah. Right. And he never wrote that, a book, Damon. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like he was pretty busy. Um, 
Well, being a with, spy and a double agent yeah, and a triple agent and yeah. running a <laughs> school and yeah, fair enough. Yep, then moving fencing school, then debtor prison and... And, and, and yeah. am I right in thinking that you, you describe all the Bonetti stuff in the introduction oh, yeah. to the Saviolo book? Yeah, oh, I'm just yeah. I'm just floating that there so that people listening going, oh, I need to know more about Rocco Bonetti. Know which book to go and buy because this is what podcasts are for. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I was like, this is where I'm going to, and most of the holdup in getting that book out was, um, trying to, I wanted to prove once and for all where Saviolo's school was located because up to that date, we had no idea. And every historical reference before my book is wrong. So I don't know why people keep spewing Aylward's stuff and all this it's just wrong yeah think, think about Aylward now we're talking about his English Masters of Defence book mm-hmm. yeah great book if you're not too worried about factual accuracy right, and, <laughs> right? And, but it's a it's a fascinating book but oh my god oh. like everything he says about McBain is wrong yeah I mean it's all <laughs> just it's, it's it's close all of it is close Right. But it's all, it's bizarre. It's like, it's like he never actually saw a book or something. So there's just, well, I find that from the Victorian era up through that time period, there's a lot of logic applied as fact. So they go, well, okay, for Saviola School, for example, we know it was in the little street where the well is. And Aylward was able to find a well that was somewhere in the Blackfriars area, and therefore that's where his school was. Yeah. Never mind, we have other data points that go, well, that's way too far away to actually be where his school is. So, And you did find it, didn't you? Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, I think I did. Um, because sure. it was only in the 90s that they dug up this um, area, and they found a little well. I think it was 92. Um, there's this great law in Britain that would never happen in the U.S. where if you're going to build new construction, you have to allow them to excavate the area for a year or two before you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. If there's any reason to suppose there's uh, an area of archaeological interest there, then you have to allow the excavation before you proceed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, obviously, we're not going to have that in America. <laughs> it's no. Like, nothing. 2,000 years old under whatever we're building. So, um, yeah, that's where they found this well, and it fits the criteria. It uh, On a map uh, from the time period, you can see it's in a little street. Um, mm-hmm. We know that that's where a well was, and it was within a bow shot, uh, literally and figuratively, of Bell Savage Yard. The only other data point that I couldn't find there is at the sign of the Red Lion. Well, yeah, the, the Red Lion is the most common pub name in Britain. Yeah, there's seven there's pages a lot, a lot of, of reference. Yeah, I went through yeah. all seven pages, locating <laughs> every one of them on a map to triangulate where they were in relationship to Bell Savage Yard. Seven and pages. Pubs also the pubs also say, uh, change their names sometimes. <laughs> so so I mean what was a part also pubs sometimes stop being pubs and start being something else so yeah I mean yeah. It, that's it's it's tricky 
Um, so what was but, magical, I'll just share this yeah. part of it. What yeah, was please. magical is that I was literally um, in that the building of the Society of the Apothecaries where I was doing this research to find this. When I'm actually figuring out these data points and the location based on the research that I went and pulled from the archaeology uh, department, I was on the other side of the wall to where that little street is. Wow. When I figured that out, I'm in the northernmost part of the building, which is where that little street was. I wow. was so eerie. Yeah. Yeah. You can always, if you if you listen carefully, you can still hear the clashing of blades and and Cynthia Saviolo yelling at his students. Oh God, what I wouldn't give her a time machine. Yeah. Um, now, just to again, a a lot of I think most people doing historical martial arts now have started sometime in the last ten years, right? Okay. Which is after so many treatises <laughs> have become available, so much has been done, but. When I was when I visited New York for the first time as an adult in two thousand one, I was staying in your apartment uh, mm -hmm. on the northern end of Manhattan Island, and I took a gigantic pile of uh, comb-bound photocopies to the local copy shop with your permission, of course, and spent an absolute fortune getting the whole lot copied, and that was at that time probably the best historical. Best uh, archive of historical fencing sources available outside of like specialist collections in posh museums that don't let you photocopy anything. Right. So, how come you had this gigantic stack of fencing sources in your apartment in 2001? So, um, obviously, uh, I know you've talked about uh, Patry before. Um, he is. We would be nowhere without Patry Plugesi, um, a wonderful man. And he was the first one to go out and uh, photocopy uh, treatises and make them available for sale. So he had this web page, one page with a whole list and the, the cost for him. And I bought up almost every one of them. And I thought that what he was doing was amazing. And so this was um, what I was doing in 97, 98 before uh, I came over to Scotland. So my mission uh, upon <clears throat> getting over to Scotland was to build this collection. And so I was able to get into uh, the archives at Leeds and start making mm -hmm. photocopies. And so I quickly doubled my collection. Um, and uh, they don't let you do that anymore. Right. I feel like it was such a, a wonderful window of time because I had got connected with the, the curator and he had been trying to get them to make one copy of every one of their books for archival purposes, right? To yeah. have them, um, to have that copy. <clears throat> and they're like, we're not going to spend the money on that. So I came in and said, well, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to pay for it. So he could go back to the council or whoever and say, mm -hmm. no, it costs you nothing. This man's going to pay for them. So he made a copy and then made that second copy for me. Right. 
So and the, the first copy is expensive because it requires special scanning and all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah, um, and you're oh, dealing yeah. with a delicate a delicate book. But the second copy, you just take a stack of paper and run them through a photocopier. So yeah, yeah, and I I have the credit card bills on this somewhere. It was not <laughs> the cost pretty. Of fortune. <laughs> so much, and but I yeah. but right, but we were so hungry for it. You remember yeah. what it was like. I remember in 97 sitting down with uh, Craig Johnson from Arms and Armor and we were like, look at this book, this um, this is Egerton Castle and he talks about all of these masters. This is an amazing history of fencing because nobody yeah. had it, right? Yeah. And um, so to be able to get these copies out of there and then I was also able to work in a couple other libraries and get copies of them. Um, I was able to get the copy of McBain when I was in Scotland, um, and that was huge. And yeah. uh, then when I got back to New York, I started doing the same thing at the New York Public Library. So before Google Books ever came up, I had and still have hundreds of copies of treatises that I made available for sale just like Patry did. I included Patry in my book list and pointed um, everybody to go to him if they wanted these books. You know, these right. are the ones that are yeah, yeah, available. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, adding, you're adding to his collection, but you're not taking any of his business because Pat, Patry was basically the godfather of historical martial arts. And we all, we all worship him as an ancestor. 100%. He sadly died in, I think, was it 2006? Um, it was quite a long time ago. Yeah, five, six, somewhere in there. I know yeah. we immediately at ISMAC, we immediately started doing a, a fundraiser every year yeah. where we uh, did different things to raise money to help us, uh, his daughters in college. Right. So, yeah, I, I remember one of those auctions. I still have a dagger that I bought at one of those charity auctions. Yeah, and um, I'll never forget shaving a tonsure in Stevie Fix's head. <laughs> That's right. It was, that, I, it was people. People basically paid to see that happen. <laughs> well, we paid to do it. Uh, Christy Sharon bet against me, uh, and I was like, "You can go as high as you want. I am doing this. Right. I've known that man too long not to be the one shaving his head." <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So. Um, yeah, so the it's also I think maybe just worth reminding the younger listeners that digital photography didn't really become a thing until the early two thousands, and a digital camera from say two thousand three was crap by modern standards. I mean, nowadays you can take your phone, point it at a book, go snap, 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 and photograph the whole book in twenty minutes. Mm -hmm. But back then, a camera that would actually take a decent digital photograph of a page was a professional level piece of gear, right? The, the commercial oh, stuff yeah. just, it was rubbish. And, and phones mm -hmm. did have cameras in like 2002, 2003, but they had, I think they, they generated something at about 15 kilobytes of per picture, something like that. There were, there were these tiny little <laughs> postage stamp pictures that were, you could pretty much tell there was a person there, but that was about it. But yeah, so, <laughs> so all this process of disseminating the treatises before the advent of all these digital scans and the World Wide Web getting a lot more efficient, um, it was all photocopies and photocopies of photocopies unto the nth generation. Yeah, I just kept doing it because I wanted to get the word out there, you know. I, yeah. 
and the mission behind so or the motivation behind so many of the projects that I do, the seminars, the workshops, all of this stuff comes down to validity for this art. And what right. I what I always tell people is before I die, I want to overhear a conversation where somebody goes, well, I'm a martial artist. And the reply is, yeah, Eastern or Western? Oh, I've heard, I've heard that already. Well, damn it. Good. I'm glad you have. I haven't yet, but <laughs> we're, we're definitely getting there, you know, and yeah. I'm, I'm happy to see it. Like people understand that we have a rich martial arts heritage in this European tradition. Yeah. Um, now, uh, you have your own book, uh, Staging Shakespeare's Violence, and I must confess that I have not yet read it. No Which worries. is a shockingly, <laughs> shockingly bad behavior on the part of a friend, I know, and even worse on the part of a podcast interviewer. But so just <laughs> so just tell everybody what it's about and then we'll go into some detail. Yeah. So um, even God, for many years, I couldn't decide which I loved more uh, stage combat and fighting for stage and screen or uh, or historical fencing. And then I realized there's a lot more similarities than anybody ever shared with me. And so I started to bring those two worlds together a little bit more and created um, the New York Combat for Stage and Screen as um, a company that grounds their fights in martial reality and found other people along the way that shared that. Uh, ideology like uh, John Lennox and Kyle Rowling and um, you both know, of whom um, who have been on this show I must say <laughs> <laughs> excellent <laughs> um, so that was um, kind of moving along I was like alright there's a way to bring these two things together now as a young fight director going into Shakespeare it's extremely daunting sometimes um, because sure. you just don't know the plays well enough or God forbid it's a history play and you're like, who's this guy in York land? It's really hard to keep track of. And so for many years, I wanted a book like Staging Shakespeare's Violence. And so for another decade or so, I told every fight director I knew to go and write this book. And right. none of them did it. And so finally, I was like, all right, it needs to get done. Um, mm -hmm. So I approached uh, Seth Dewar, the artistic director of York Shakespeare, because he is one of the most knowledgeable Shakespeareans on the planet. Um, he's also... Um, he's a very kindred spirit in the sense that... And you'll appreciate this guy, right? He's unapologetically... Um, knows what he knows, right? So he's right. not going to be falsely humble, right? Um, and it's so it's so tedious and tiring with someone who's clearly got like decades of experience and stuff. It's like, well, you know, no, I mean, no, you're an expert now. Just, just, right. just tell me how it is. Yeah, right. And yeah. and so that comes with also, you know, like I I know what I know, and I'm not going to apologize for knowing that. I'm very good at what I do. 
On the flip side, when I get into a situation where I don't know what I'm doing, I'm the first one to raise my hand and ask questions. Like, I'm right. not going to <laughs> pretend like I know what that is. So um, Seth is great that way, and he was always wonderful as a uh, director and an actor to work with because he's very collaborative, but he has very strong opinions. And our opinions clash many times, but there's this old thing. It's called an argument. And again, we need to discuss an argument because people don't understand it. It is when... Two people who respect each other, and that's an important element of an argument, disagree. And then, Mm -hmm. wait for it, they actually throw out facts at each other and both listen. And maybe even change their mind based on the information that the other person introduces. Yeah. So this old idea of an argument is something Seth and I do often. And... uh, So we made sure to include that in the book. So when you pick up uh, Staging Shakespeare's violence, not only do you get all of the violence in Shakespeare, you get Seth and I arguing with each other throughout the book. So we're color-coded because sometimes we agree, and when we don't, we both say our piece because I'm right. So is he. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the beauty of art. Yeah, and, and when there isn't when there isn't like a definitive fact that that demonstrates one or the other, um, then yeah. yes, why would you? Like I remember when my friend Stephen Hand, who's also mm. been on the show, yeah. um, he came to do seminars for me in uh, Helsinki, and we started with a sword and buckler workshop on the first weekend, and then he did a George Silver workshop on the second weekend, and throughout that sword and buckler workshop. Um, I was sort of watching, okay, I can see that. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. And and then for the next couple of days, we would be like discussing Sword and Buckler back and forth. And on the Wednesday night, we did a class for my students um, where we taught the students what Stephen was going to change having seen what I do and what I was going to change having seen what Stephen does and where we still disagree. Mm -hmm. Right? And it was entirely collegial. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it was like, yeah, okay. So we've, we've met and we've compared our interpretation or whatever, and we've both come away with better stuff than we had before, but we're still different in these other areas. It was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was lovely. And it was good for the students to see that disagreeing with someone does not, does not indicate disrespect. Right. It, it can be done respectfully, right? And it's, it comes yeah. down to what is the goal, Right. So when you're presenting this art, for example, I went and did a Capoferro seminar at a school uh, one, one day of the two that I was there. Um, and the lead instructor, after we were done with that uh, workshop, uh, shut down the rapier program. He said, right. I've got to start again from scratch. I'm not doing this anymore until I revamp it. Wow. I did. Okay. I didn't ask that i didn't you know all i did was present capoferro the way that i have um have pulled this out of the treatise and so i in turn i think um i was uh anytime that i do a capoferro seminar i am presenting his words and i'm always eager for people to bring up 
well, what about this and what about that? So that yeah. I can say, well, here's here's what I found and here's why I don't do that. But I yeah. also, I'm done with a conversation. For example, there was somebody else, I think this was late 2000s, right? And um, the the gentleman was big into Capoferro and he went on guard and his feet were at 120 degree angle in the guard. Okay. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I was like, you know, you can't really do that though because then there's no way to pivot your rear foot on the lunge because your rear foot's already in the position. Right. Um, so you yeah. need your feet at a 90 degree angle in the guard so that you can pivot. And he was like, yeah, but this is more comfortable for me. Okay. I was like, all right, but don't teach that as Capoferro then. Right, exactly. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with teaching variations or adapting the art for the individual needs of a particular student. That's normal practice. But the book says this, we're doing this slightly differently for these reasons, it's fine, but you can't present something that's not, that you know to be not the book as the book. That Yeah, that drives me nuts. Yeah, and so it was like at that point, that conversation is over for me because this isn't someone yeah. that's digging into the material. They're going on guard in a way that's mm -hmm. comfortable for them. They're teaching their students that and calling it Capoferro. I'm like, and also, it may not be comfortable for the students because for me personally, standing on guard with my feet at 120 degrees is horrible. <laughs> there's I, a I reason know. there's a reason he says to be at a 90 degree angle just saying that's right yeah and it's funny though i've i've been i've watched capoferro classes given where i've seen people uh, are interpreting the turn of the back foot in the lunge differently to the way i do it and okay. i've had a perfectly useful discussion with the instructor about the difference but the thing is capoferro doesn't say how to do it he just mm -hmm. says this is, and I think it's the letter M in his illustration of the of the lunge. Um, hang on one second. Mm. And of course, I'm just fetching my actual 1609 printed Capoferro. Oh, here uh, it is. No, I beg pardon. It's it's L. It's L. L. Yep. Okay. <laughs> this is, I am. I am just. I'm just completely uh, ostentatiously and pridefully swanking about with my original. Capoferro, which I said it's printed in 1609, because this particular copy, Jared, this will blow your socks off. What? This this copy of Capoferro uh -huh. has the colophon page underneath. Basically, it has the um, the these. It has a 1609 yeah. colophon page, right? That is 1609 MDC one X. All right? right, and the. Frater Gregorius Lombardellius, uh -huh. yeah. right, who is a professor in 1610. Here he's only a doctor. He hasn't been promoted yet. Oh, God. All right. Now. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Hold on, listener. <laughs> this. Jared is racing about in his house. Uh, I'm not sure what he's fetching, but it's okay. going to be something to do with. Uh, yes, it is. Okay. But I'm taking it back downstairs before we look at this. Welcome uh, to the all-action <laughs> version of this particular <laughs> episode of the hey. show. This is 
leave it to the stuntman to add action into it. Okay, yeah, I'm now... We will get onto your stunt stuff in a bit. I'm yeah, now on. opening my original copy of Kappa Pharaoh. Oh, uh, good is, for you, sir. Good for you. Well played. Which is definitely not as nice as yours. Okay. My text says, Ego Frater Gregorius Lombardelius de Senis St. Doctor et Consultor Sanctissimae Inquisitionis in Civitate Senarum, ah. vidi Prisens Opus, in quo nihil inveni quod sit contra fidem aut bonos mores, quare mihi videtur ut posit praelo mandari, imprimator uh-huh. fr archang inqui senarum, Fabius Piccolomineus Vic, Cosmus Talius Audit. And then at the bottom it wow. says, Senis anno ad nativitate Jesu Christi M-D-C-I-X. And then, Venendato in Edibus wow. Nobilis Viri Camilli Turi. Okay, for listeners, I will put pictures Crazy. of my, um, my colophon page and Jared's colophon page in the show notes so you can compare for yourselves. Um, but yeah, so the mystery is, yeah, why is this 1609 colophon page pasted into the back of my book? Because it's pasted over the original colophon page, which is, I think, um, which is, I think, the same as the 1610 one. But I, I, I can't actually see it because it would require me to actually like be able to see through the paper, which I can't quite. Huh. That's very interesting. 1609. So it's already done and then something changes. Huh. So just just to recap, um, so your your copy has the standard sixteen ten colophon page. Yeah. Yep, hundred percent. And mine, I think, has the standard page, but the sixteen oh nine colophon page is pasted over it, which makes no sense. None whatsoever. It would make more sense to be the other way around. A hundred percent, the other way around. Right, but there's no question looking at it that it is is not a forgery in any sense of the word. I mean, it's it's. The printing is the same. The paper is the same. The manner of it being pasted down is correct for the period. I mean, it's all, yeah. So it is a mystery. Yeah. Uh, So I was going to say, this is for the listeners. Like, this is a reason you need to buy the originals and not just the Google (laughs) Books. Because, (laughs) Because you will get a glimpse into history that you can't, no, any other way, right? Yeah, although, although, hang on, it's not strictly fair to require the listeners to go off and spend the cost of a small car on a book. No, most, no, that's so little, stupid. Don't yes, do that. Yes, very, very stupid. I, I've, I would, I've only ever done that like three times, and I should. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, 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 um. And, and of course, I can write it all off against tax, which really does help. And I think mm-hmm. you're probably in the same position. Yeah. Um, but there are places you can go where you can see these sorts of books. So, for example, if you're in the UK, the National Fencing Museum, run by Malcolm Fair, who has been oh. on the show, has... Yeah, I mean, it was actually so Jared. It was you that put me onto the National Fencing Museum. Thanks to you, I went there and my mind was blown. And then I went right. back with a friend, James Hester, who's also been uh-huh. on the show... 
and a good digital camera and I photographed like 25 of the best uh, of, of the collection and all of those photographs so are like generally available to the public for whatever purpose they want to put it to. So, it's amazing. Yeah, I actually, yeah. we were having such, so I went there that night um, and, uh, or afternoon, and we got to talking and we were so engrossed that I didn't even realize I'd missed the last train. Neither right. of us did. And yeah. so I ended up staying the night. He was so kind to put me up because yeah. we just, we were so back and forth and his copies are so amazing. Um, uh, just beautiful books. Um, so yes, there are places you can go to see them. And there yes. are some of those places like the National Fencing Museum where if you behave like a reasonable person, there's a very good chance he'll let you actually handle them. Yeah. Uh, it's only in handling different copies of the original books that you get these tastes of, of history. Like yeah. my copy has... 17th century Spanish notation. Wow! And the only parts that they're really translating, this is just to help tell you how similar Spanish and Italian were, especially 400 years ago. They're more often than not, he's translating things that may be difficult, you know, funny, uh, like stringere, (laughs) that may be difficult to understand. How does he so, translate stringere? Um, sea pierma often It's like a f r s i n d e b e n i r a m e d i d a. My memory's not good enough for that. Uh, tell you what, Jared, Jared, I charge you in the name of all that is historical fencing, <laughs> to photograph every page with an inscription on it and or an annotation on it and post it somewhere so that people can see it. All right. Right? Because that is useful. Like, and do, do you have reason to believe that the annotation is period? Uh, just from the, the script. So I've shown it to yeah. several people who are familiar with uh, handwriting, period handwriting. Yeah. So, I mean... If you look at this, it's definitely okay. very old. Um, in which case, in which case, you have to photograph every page with an with and an annotation. And some it of it isn't hard, and so I don't know why some. Of, I, I initially was like, "Oh, it's just the hard concepts," but like on this page, instead of in duoi maneri, uh, uh, above that he goes on dos maneras. Right. That's. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. In two ways. <laughs> so, yeah. Not sure. Okay. Anyway, so, so that's one of the reasons I like actual old rare books. Yeah. And, and the annotations are just fantastic. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, I think this is probably getting a little frustrating for the average reader who doesn't have a, an original Capoeira sitting on their lap right now. Um, oh, is anybody so, still yeah. listening? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> <Never mind. laughs> so, all right. Tell us about Fight Direction and how you got into it. Yeah. Um, so when I was 15, I saw a human chess match at the Minnesota Renaissance Fair. And 
it's this ridiculous thing where um, humans are the chess pieces, mm-hmm. and then uh, it's all staged and choreographed, which you don't necessarily know at the time when you're a young man from a small northern Minnesota town. Um, and uh, so instead of knight takes pawn, they clear the board and the knight fights the pawn. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so you get to see this big fight, and then whoever wins actually gets the square. So if the pawn somehow wins, it's all, again, all choreographed and always ends in a big melee. Excellent. I mean, I don't know how I got my jaw off the ground. (laughs) It does sound fabulous. The only way to play chess, really. (laughs) We should... uh, Yeah, so I went up to uh, one of the performers afterwards and was just saying how amazing it was, and they told me about stage combat. They're like, oh yeah, it's all choreographed. I was like, really? I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. So I didn't know at the time that I was saying that. I started, there's nothing where I was at, so I had to move down to uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I actually started training with the fight director that choreographed that, trained all year, and then was cast and actually performed in that very same chess match. Wow. I think four years later. Fantastic. Um, yeah, it was so, so full circle. Um, yeah. But again, I just couldn't get enough of it. And um, I actually ran into him again in uh, New York here five, seven years ago. He was in town teaching a seminar, Michael Anderson, um, amazing man. And I didn't realize at the time that I think uh, a chunk of my passion for historical fencing came from him because right. he was the one who had like Thibaut's diagram. And I remember him wow. showing me that he has he had it tattooed on his arm. Also, he showed me Capifero. He was interested in these historical references also. And he started bringing in people like the first time I met Brad Waller was in 98 uh, because Michael brought him into town to do a uh, Morozzo Presso seminar. Cool. So, yeah, I had no idea. Um I didn't realize until I saw him again how much of an impact he probably had in my direction that way. So I just loved it. I kept doing it. Um, And when I got to New York, I trained here. Uh, Actually, when I was living in Edinburgh, if I wasn't fighting with you and the DDS or working at the old Waverly, I was on a train down to York um, doing a BADC certification um, with Ian. I would drive, uh, take the train down to London and train with people down there. So like Richard Ryan and Brett Young. And I met people that have been lifelong Sage Combat friends down there. Kepa Curdy. And um, so, yeah, I just never stopped. Um Okay, so what makes a good fight director? <laughs> For me, it is all about um, storytelling violence. Yeah, I think that violence is one of the most underutilized storytelling tools we have. And sure. let me qualify that. I don't mean underutilized like we don't have a lot of action out there. Not what I mean. I mean that 
action is a way that we can reveal character in a way that words never can. Right, yeah, someone who, who comes up behind somebody and punches them in the kidney is not the same as someone who comes up to the front of them and punches them in the face. Exactly, right? And making those character choices makes your character stronger. Sometimes right. just the threat of violence and the way that a character does that can reveal character. So I love to this day, after over 25 years of doing it, I love exploring how we can express character through violence and make sure that the violence matches the tone of the piece and right. that the violence comes from a place that the characters have to fight. And then it seamlessly flows out of that. So most of the time, I don't want anybody to realize I did anything. They should never stop and go, oh, what great choreography. Well, then right. I failed because yeah. they recognize it as choreography. They have to, they know they didn't really get slapped, but they should never stop to think about it. Yeah. Because they're so engrossed in the story. And that's what I love about the art. Um, the other part of that I call action porn. Yeah. So, and as a performer, I love doing that. I love fighting for fighting's sake and then kind of tying a story around it. It's a lot of fun to do and it can be fun to watch, but you got to know what you're going into. And that's why I call it action porn, right? If you pop in that movie because you really want to see the pizza delivery man deliver that pizza... You're going to be sorely disappointed by this film. Yeah. Yeah. But um, if you're in the mood for some action fun, great. Yeah. You're going to have and a great action, time. And, and, and you know, the, the quality of filmed violence in terms of, like, the balletic choreography has mm -hmm. improved so much in the last 25 years. And, like, what the performers are able to do with these, like, amazing, like, sort of sort of jump you up in the air and get your legs wrapped around the person's neck and then flip them on the ground. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. It's yeah. fantastic. But, I mean, none of it is how people actually fight. No, not it at all. It just looks amazing. And, and that's the beauty of that <clears throat> because... We're able to do more with that, especially because of CGI. So we can be in harness and do a lot of wire work and do these crazy things. They can erase the wires in post-production. And, um, and yet there are also just some superhuman people out there that can actually do some of this yeah. stuff. Um, but here you have to consider the world you're in. So if we're in a fantasy world and I consider every Marvel film a fantasy world, yeah. now we can have this heightened uh, violence, right? Yeah. And we want to see that. So as long as um, there are, uh, and John Lennox wrote this years ago, 10 fight director rules, right? Um, and those are just pretty solid as far as does the violence serve the story, right? And another part of that is, are we staying within the realm of the world that we're in? You right. shouldn't do anything that breaks the rules of that world. So yeah. as long as you continue to do that, it's fine, right? We know when you go into a Marvel movie, they're not going to bleed. That they're going to take yeah. beatings that... <laughs> 
no human could ever yeah. survive, even though there are human characters in there. No human could survive that, right? You think. Yeah. And then Jeremy Renner goes off and still lives after this snowplow incident. And you're like, all right, maybe the man could take that much pain. <laughs> and, and, and it's funny because I actually get really bored in those incredibly long set piece fights like i mean like the superman versus batman one and whatever and they're having this great big fight at the end i'm just i was bored out of my skull yeah it's just like yeah just i tried to watch the the justice league i was like everybody's raving about this four hour thing it took me five days and fast forwarding yeah and i'm like no this is not working for me (laughs) yeah but yeah if 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 people listening if that's your jam then enjoy your jam and you know no no criticism from us but yeah yeah 100 as 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 violence professionals in a, in a way um <laughs> i yeah i do find a lot of the the stuff in the movies these days it just goes on too long yep like, like fights shouldn't take that long i think again it depends on what is happening right if we go back to that cliffs of insanity fight Right, oh, yeah. that's really long. This right? about ninety seconds On or two purpose. minutes. Yeah, still really but long. It's, but it's still a couple of minutes. But but by Marvel standards, that's a short fight. Yeah, but here's the difference: every layer, every fifteen to twenty seconds of that fight, you're learning something new about the characters. The characters, absolutely. It's, it's constantly revealing more about the characters. Yeah. And that's why you can have a five-minute fight scene that is amazing and will keep you interested, but I guarantee you the ones you're talking about that are not interesting to you yeah. have revealed no character at within a 30 to 40-second chunk of that fight. You've learned nothing new about that character. Yeah, it's just variations on throwing concrete at each other basically right. or throwing each other at concrete either way <laughs> yeah 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 now um, then you move into something like have you seen the new john wick no i haven't oh, so good, good? okay yeah i'll, I'll watch yeah. it i watched john the first wick, one i loved it yeah john wick one great you can skip two and three I, they were wonderful i had a good time with them but they weren't the caliber of one and four is actually right up there with one um, okay still not as good but really it was so much fun. But this is also going to be exhausting. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the point. Like, you actually get to feel his exhaustion because you're exhausted. And that <laughs> I'm not sure that's what I want in a film. <laughs> but okay, I'll, I'll give it yeah. a go. But, okay, but you've actually done quite a lot of these stunts yourself. So I, Done a chunk, yeah. So, yeah. Um, fight, stage combat in uh, actors fighting on film is different than stunt work. Sure. Um, they're two, uh, they're similar, but they're very different in the sense that, uh, for me, this is the way that I break it down now. Um, if you're, uh, an actor fighting on film or stage or a stage combatant, um, when you're done with a fight, you should be in the same condition that you started in just really tired, right? Um, When you're a stunt person, you may be bruised, you may be bloody, but you shouldn't be broken. Okay. That's the rules. So I have taken uh, bottles to the head, 
Which really? actually, oh yeah, those they're uh, breakaway Glass. models. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, they're synthetically made so that they look correct, but they're meant to break. Yeah. So a beer bottle, even a wine bottle, uh, coffee cups I've done, none of those, those are fine. Honestly, Jared, this explains a lot. <laughs> no, this is well after all the insanity. Um, I was definitely dropped on my head. Um, so, but on Blue Bloods, I took a decanter to the head. Oh. And that, even though it's a breakaway piece, that has to be made thicker uh, than a regular bottle. And uh, so that one, you know, that definitely pieces cut me up a little bit. So there's a little bit of blood, did it twice, little more blood. It Again, it's all superficial and it was all just put a little ointment on it and move on. Um, but... In stage combat, that should never happen, right? Because yeah. these are the actual actors, the primaries that are doing it. So they should never be injured in any way. They should never be even bruised. But as right. stunts, we have to have this skill set to know how to take those kind of things. And then also build skill sets that stage combat people don't need. Like um, I've been doing a lot of stunt driving now, um, right. which is so much fun. Uh, fire burns. Uh, so you can see in my stunt reel, I've done uh, burns. I actually did. We'll put a, a link to your stunt reel in the show notes. Okay, sure. Um, you'll get to see. I don't know if I included it, but I did a, a, a fire sword fight uh, against a staff guy, and then he lights me up with that. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, Falls, um, we consider anything that's lower than 30 feet to be a low fall. Um, I'm only comfortable up to like 15, 20 feet falling off something. Um, so up to 30 feet is a low fall. Yeah, a high fall is... 30, 30 feet is is probably taller than my house. Yep, I live in so, a two-story house. Yep, that's a low fall. So high falls right. are 30 feet and higher, so... Um, okay. So how do you survive a fall from, say, 20 feet? Um, it, it's important to land on your back and flat. So the okay. two biggest dangers are called uh, piking. So yeah. if your butt goes in first because uh, you're in kind of a V yeah. um, or if you're not landing uh, properly. But, but presumably you're landing on something designed for that. Oh, 100%. Right. Okay. I mean, if you were actually jumping off a house, you would want to land on your feet and hope for the best. Uh, yes and no. So okay. if you're ever ever actually jumping off something and you need to save yourself, what you want to do is you want to land on your feet, but as the moment of impact, you want to go into a roll yeah. and dissipate that energy before, if that energy goes straight down, you're going to shatter your legs. Yeah. pelvis like everything's going to break depending on the height of the fall but if you tap the ground with your feet and immediately go into a roll then you dissipate that energy right okay but so, for, for stunt falls you're landing flat on your back on a prepared surface yep on uh, yeah. pads okay. so pads. and based on the height of the fall there's a minimum amount of padding that you're going to want okay. um you know, when so what is, what is the most dangerous stunt you've ever done? Uh, the, a fall. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, yeah, I haven't done big, huge things, but the one that I did on a show was an eight-foot fall in an elevator shaft. Oh, God. And so the fall wasn't a concern. An eight-foot fall, not no that problem. big a deal. But because the elevator shaft is only seven and a half feet deep... You can't fully spread out. You cannot actually fall the way that you want to, or you'll crash your head into the wall. Right. So you have to know how to take some distance out so that you can fall in a straighter line. But if you take too much distance out, you fall straight on your head. <laughs> okay. So it was this balancing act where we had to go through the rehearsal and... Thank God we did it on a stage. They built an elevator shaft to look like the location. And for filming purposes, they actually had a fake wall in the back. So right. for rehearsals, we were able to open up that wall and make our mistakes. And yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, there were two of us that had to do that fall and... Uh, <laughs> there would have been injuries. So uh, we did the rehearsal and we figured that out. Um, but then for shooting purposes, they had to have that wall closed. Yeah, so, um, yeah. So uh, that's funny because that's everyone would have thought, I mean, what's the most dangerous stunt you've ever done? Either a really high fall or being set on fire or something like that. But no, it's an eight foot fall. But because of the constraints you can't do the usual falling technique that's that's fascinating yeah that's where it gets interesting so a lot of stunts um uh somebody once put it at, as calculated risk right so we go in we look at it and go here's everything that can go wrong we solve for all the problems that can be solved for you don't do anything that you think is going to hurt you like nobody, yeah. no stunt person goes out there and goes, well, I'll do it anyway. Yeah, it'll um, just be a broken leg. I'll be fine. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Right. But realizing that everything is lined up and as safe as possible and something could go wrong. Sure. And it's usually something unforeseen. Right. Something well, if you can foresee it. Calculate Paul. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh, okay. The, uh, now, we do have to discuss um, historical martial arts events because... You're like you're one of those few people who have actually put on historical martial arts events consistently over quite a long period. So, how did the ISMAX, so the International uh, Sword Fighting and Martial Sword Play and Martial Arts Convention, nope. begin? Sword fighting. You're right. Sword fighting. I was right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, um, the very first. Uh, so. If we take people back to, I think, 95 is when Ken Franger started the Western Martial Arts Yahoo group. Okay. And that's how a lot of us met first. That's the first time I talked talked to Stefan Deek, Stephen yep. Hand, um, William Wilson, a lot of these people that I started to get to know and we were comparing, talking. It, it was a great forum. And uh, so... Through that, uh, Greg Melee, Mark Rector, everybody was on this. And I think it was through that forum that Greg decided to have the Chicago Sword Play Guild gathering in 1999. And okay. this is what we now look at as the first WMAW. Yeah. 
didn't have the title at the time, but it's definitely the first time we all got together in person and got to meet and fight and uh, learn. And um, there are already some interesting, colorful folks there that have long since gone. So, um, but yeah, it was a, a wonderful event. And uh, one of the people that I met there was John Lennox. And you cannot imagine my surprise to find somebody else who was also a stage combat person into historical fencing and thought that martially, the martial integrity of a fight mattered. You shouldn't right. just be making up fantastical stuff. Like, let's actually ground it in reality. So we connected right away. <laughs> and <laughs> we had such a great time at, um, at this event that we're like, this is great. Uh, we should do something like this, but also something like Patty Crean. So the Patty Crean event was a stage combat event that... Um, included uh historical martial arts but we wanted to do and the wmaw was a historical martial arts event so right. we wanted to do <coughs> Sorry. we wanted to do kind of the flip side of the patty cream uh coin and have a historical martial arts event that had stage combat as well right. and that's where it started because john said well i teach at a college i could get a space and right. I said, well, I know the historical fencing people that I would want at an event. So I'll do the teachers. I'll create the schedule. You figure out the space. You make sure we can do this. And then we can have an event. And it did. Uh, it did happen. Um, it was wonderful. Uh, it's funny to think of it now because at that time we had... Um, two tracks of classes so when you came you could choose class a or b wow revolutionary crazy right um <laughs> just to <laughs> fast forward to combat con now you can take 11 classes at the same time typically oh, right. or yep. be in tournaments or do that it's just yep. such a different world and um so yeah so we did um we did ISMAC that way for, I think, three, four years where we were bringing the worlds together. But really, the stage combat and stuff like that, it just wasn't sticking and wasn't fitting as well. So I think it was around 0304 that we started to concentrate just on European martial arts. Right. Yeah. Because I remember 2001, I had just started my school and I thought, I need to get out there a bit. And so I contacted you long after the event was basically already organized because um, it was in July, I think. And I started my school in March. So I probably contacted you in like April or May and said, Jared, can I come and teach a class at your event, please? And you were like, well, guy, we've, we've, um, our, our budget is, is, is done and dusted. So we can't <laughs> give you any money for flights and stuff. But if you get here, we, you can definitely teach a class. I'm like, right, fine. Okay. So I flew to New York and that's when I got your photocopies and whatnot. And then I went to, um, to Lansing and had a fantastic time. And at the end of the event, you came up to me and said, Guy, we actually made a profit. So to help you with your flights, here is our profit. And it was $50. <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. laughs> Thank you, Dad. 
<laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, my sole great. goal was, yeah, I wanted to take care of all the instructors. There just yeah. wasn't ever any money in these things. And yeah, no, sure. But our, actually, one thing that yeah. Ismac was sort of absolutely brilliant at was you guys looked after us instructors superbly well. Um, like that one time when you guys, you, you had sort of polled the instructors, we were all in a, in a room together and uh-huh. the organizers were like, okay, so what, what, what can we, what can we, you know, do to make this better for you guys? And I just said, well, actually I need someone to carry my bags, um, and a concubine. And, and so <laughs> the next time I went to a class, somebody said, ah, oh, this was I'm going to carry your bag. <laughs> so we carried it to the next class. And then when I got to my hotel room that night, there was a fluffy sheep in my bed. <laughs> we aim to please. <laughs> you took me at my word just about. <laughs> yeah, I think it was that same year somebody said a cappuccino maker. And the next year, we had a cappuccino, cappuccino. maker in the green room. Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, good. I mean, some of the stuff we got up to in the evenings are my favorite memories. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how many of those should, should be aired, but they were definitely well, pranks of a legendary level. Yeah, yeah. I, the pranks, I mean, that is a whole show. Um, but I just remember making up a song about you while I was drinking. Okay. And it was, and I only got the one verse out, which was something like, this is a song about Guy. And then I cracked up laughing because then I had to explain it to everybody. I was like, you see, it's funny because his name is Guy and he's a guy. (laughs) Oh, and and he's the British Finnish guy. (laughs) Oh, that's what it was. It was the British Finnish guy. Yes, that's that right. was the song. <laughs> and, and for some reason, for some reason, you found that hysterically funny. Um, yep. I think uh, I'm not sure how many, how much company you had in that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, probably very little. But I also don't remember noticing. I also, I also seem to remember there was there was some um, fencing with sharks in the hotel lobby at one point. Sharps? No, not that I recall. No, 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 no not sharp oh. swords, but like, um, oh. like uh, you know, nineteenth-century sharps, where you have like a, a one-centimeter blade sticking out the end of your foil. Oh no, I think it was uh, thumbtacks. Thumbtacks. There we go. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Stick a thumbtack um, on the end of a foil and play with that. Uh, through a rubber button. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine people doing that because we were also doing the horse and rider single stick. Yeah. Um. And and the um, <laughs> but also but more seriously, I remember John did a uh, pirate combat thing on an actual ship. Yeah, because which is in the middle to... of of Lansing. Yep. Yeah, he wanted to do boarding actions, and I was like, "Yeah, but it's not boarding actions if it's not on a ship. You have to get a ship." And I was like, "Yeah, whatever." And then he went out and he got a uh, uh, he got an actual uh, boat big boat that does events down the river and they let us come out there and do the whole boarding actions class on a boat that was moving down the river amazing genius. that's genius um, <laughs> we, uh, okay. we tried to approach the uh, treasure island in vegas to do the same thing in 
in Combat Con. <laughs> like they didn't return they our no. calls. No. no, they didn't return our calls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Jared, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? The second volume of staging Shakespeare's violence. Okay. What what is left to say? <laughs> well, it's um it's a two volume series. So twenty plays are in this first volume that's out, mm-hmm. and we have twenty more to do. Ah, uh, okay. So um, my co author has done all his work, and I'm driving him insane with taking little chunks of of my part of it out. Um, I am not. I am way behind deadline. Um, right. Which so, is part of the course for me. <laughs> well, I mean, you do seem to get quite a lot done. I mean, you have like several books out and you know, so it's, not, it's not like you can't finish things. So what's stopping you finishing this one? Uh, it is a lot of it is the focus on stunts right now. Um, okay. You know, uh, that's actually been paying off. And the uh, training time, um, I'm training with a, a group of some people now where... I mean, when you can see palpable growth every yeah. month, I can right. look at a video from just a month ago and go, wow, I'm so much better and I still have so much to do. That excites me. Yeah. Um, I learned a very valuable lesson in COVID um, that I am more of an extrovert than I realized. I always okay. identified myself as an introvert, right? I, I love... I love my friends, the people that I already know and that I'm comfortable with, small groups, wonderful. Big groups, not so much. Uh, strange being a performer. You'd think I would love a stage. But sure. I don't. Um, but what I realized that I missed was the process of, of getting it, of learning. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that's what I love about being a teacher I love that moment where a student gets it and yeah. they've grown and they're better at it because of that. And then I realized I don't care which side of the coin I'm on. I love that experience as a teacher, but I love that experience as a student sure. when I'm the one having that growth. So there's a lot of that right now. Um, Combat Con has just grown into this big beast um, so many heads and so many things that need to be done. So that takes up a lot of time. Um, and then, you know, these other really interesting ideas come up and I have to say yes. So, ah, uh, okay. Um, yes. for example, the week before combat con, uh, Simone Belli, uh, Italian stunt coordinator, and I are going to, uh, work with Anthony DeLongis and we're doing a week long old west stunt experience oh wow so we're gonna be living and training at the top of a mountain in california for a week um at the end of the week we'll be filming um some stunt shorts um simone had this idea and i was like yeah i i have to do that with you that's wonderful let's do it yeah but then coordinating that setting up the schedule uh my Stage combat company here in New York. We're now running four classes a week. We have a summer intensive coming up where it's a week long training that culminates in live performances in New York City. You're so not going to be doing one... any writing during that period. 
<laughs> so yeah, basically from July 6th. Oh, July 6th. I think we haven't solidified this, but speaking of uh, this art changing people's lives, uh, a pair met in my fencing class 13 years ago, and they just reached out because they're now getting married. Oh, they, bless. They asked me to officiate the wedding. Oh, wow. Well, fantastic. Yeah, and it just, it lands perfectly. It's the day before I leave, and then yep. I'm gone for like five weeks. <laughs> so, Perfect. Yeah, so that's definitely getting in the way. Um, I have about a million other ones. Um, one of my, one of the, if, if I had a month, Mm-hmm. And I could, uh, the second book was done. Uh, one of the projects that I want to dig into, because my, my master's thesis for the Martinez Academy was on uh, Degrassi's system. Okay. And um, so what I love about that period, and I want to delve into so much more, is that uh, era of Sysord. So comparing his approach and then... You know, going right down the line with Vigiani, Del Goki, Morozzo. Um, those are the big ones that I want to really do a deep comparison and contrast okay. and, you know. Um, so there's actually a quite dive. a lot of best ideas you haven't acted on because you've got too many things you are acting on. Yeah, and that's what makes all of them take so much longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, so... If, if I was to hand you a million dollars or similar enormous sum of imaginary money to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? I even had time with this, and there's just too much. Okay. Um, one of the things that I find interesting, um, what I would love to get back to, um, I would definitely, part of the money would go into, um, like the social media platform you just built. Yep. I think is brilliant. Um, oh, good. Right. Oh, you it like it. Goes back to. Let loads of say, Jared is talking about swordpeople.com, to which, of course, all listeners are sword people and therefore should join. Just saying. <laughs> Carry on. Because the idea is to try to get back to what we got to experience with these kind of forums early on. Yeah, exactly. Which was civil discussion and human beings who are actually interested in the information and know what they know and know what they don't. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and the, the two keys to that is there's no anonymity on the platform. You don't have to use your the name that's on your driving license, but you have to use a name that is that you are known by in the community. So if you have an SCA name, you can use that, for instance. But it people have to know who they're talking to, and there is an absolutely zero tolerance for any kind of misbehavior. And because mm-hmm. it's my platform, I can just you know if I need to, I can just throw people off, and there is no recourse, there is no no mercy. It's like you behave like a dick, you're gone. Yeah. as yet it hasn't happened um i have i have uh had to ask a couple of people to actually put their names instead of just their initials on their profile mm. but that's that those are the only 
only things that have come up. And, you know, and a couple of things, you know, somebody who's using English as their second or third language has said something in a way that could be read as a bit unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But with a bit of context and whatever, it's clear they weren't trying to be a dick, so that's fine. Right. Um, but it's like it's like moderation, active human moderation, and no anonymity. And suddenly, people behave like nice people. Yeah, it's it's funny. I just uh, saw this quote, um, and I love it so much. So simple, but it said, "Your beliefs do not make you a better person." your behavior does. (laughs) That's good. That's very good. And that's it. Boom. I, you know, getting back to where people's egos are not a part of the discussion, where it's about the information and the goal is to learn, not to showboat, not to aggrandize. right? Right. Um, so if everybody has that goal, um, personally, I'm interested in more specific individual training times. So like I was saying, what I would, I would love to have and create these environments for people that are well-versed in a subject to get together and compare notes and just be a part of that, right? Sure. <clears throat> and... And if it's on a subject that I do know a lot about, then I'll be a, a literal part of that. Right. You know? um, but like I was saying, I love learning. And so, so you'd use the money to sort of organize, um, amongst other things, you would some, some way of supporting more advanced practitioners to get together to actually advance the art. Yes. Yeah, yeah okay. because... If you go back, I started running major events in 2000 with ISMAC, yeah. and it's 2023, right? I'm still not good at it. Um, I've just learned a lot along the way. Um, but the goal has always been to increase exposure to the public about what we do. Right. And that's why ISMAC had to morph into CombatCon. We needed a bigger platform, a bigger stage, because that growth potential had kind of fizzled off, even though it was a wonderful event. Um, So now we've got this big thing in Vegas to help spread the word. Now, um, I'd like to, I used to think I just want everything translated. And now I understand I don't want everything translated. I want everything translated well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah there's a lot of bad translations being done and put out there now and then people and, don't and some of them are contemporary that. i mean yeah. like oh, the yeah. the translation of degrassi into english oh, in, in <laughs> so 1570 bad. was it yep ah oh, it's so when you compare bad. it to the original italian it's like oh my god mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> but so, but it stood as Degrassi for English speakers for 400 years. Yeah, (laughs) it's amazing. So yeah, I think it would be about at this point, the the explosion has happened. Mm -hmm. And so now I think it's time to get back down to curating and cultivating uh, the material so that we don't end up doing what the Victorians did, where it's just, it's fine if it's hearsay. 
people think that they are doing a system of fencing because they're watching five different people's videos on it who all agree, and then that must be the answer. Right. And now they're engaging in arguments without ever opening a primary source. Yeah. yeah. So, no, we have to get back to actually having that knowledge and engaging with that foundation under you. Yeah. Getting back to the original sources. Okay. Yeah. That's what makes it historical. It's the H, isn't it? It's the H in historical <laughs> martial arts. <laughs> so yeah. if you've gotten your information from Google and YouTube, it's not, you're not doing a historical art until you've done that digging. Or, or you, might, you might be doing a historical art, but there's no well, way yeah. to know. Yeah. And again, yeah. it's not a judgment when I say that, right. right? That's part of what I love about Combat Con. There are Tons of things happening there that I'm not interested in, personally. But I love that people are. And what I really want is for everybody to find their expression, right? Right. If you want to fight in tournaments and you want to win, no matter what the treatises say, you're not interested in that, great. Go and compete because you know yourself. We've had had guests on the show who are tournament fencers with no real interest in historical sources and people who are very much into the test cutting side of things and people who are very much into the stage combat but not so much the historical stuff and you know it's we're all at the end of the day sword people and we overlap in all sorts of areas and i think if focusing on the to me to, to my mind it's basically it boils down to training standards are you describing what you're doing truthfully? Mm-hmm. Right. So, do you know that what you're doing is what you're doing? Right. Like, yeah. So, so you know, someone someone's doing SCA heavy combat, and they say I'm doing SCA heavy combat. It's true. Right. If not that I've seen this, but if just a, as a hypothetical situation, they are doing their armored um, fighting with a rattan stick in the SCA mm. fashion and they present that to the public as actual medieval combat that's where Artist I would have a problem <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah yeah it's which is a different thing um yeah for me yeah, what so I, as, sorry what i found for me especially at combat con there's so many different kinds of people and what i realized is that if you're walking around and you think you're cool because of your sword geekery you're already wrong we <laughs> are all just geeks who take this very seriously. Like my traditional martial arts that I teach and train people all the time, I take very seriously when we're training. Right. And I'm extremely passionate about that. But it doesn't make me cool. No. It just right? it makes you a fan, basically. So it makes you a Capoeira fanboy. (laughs) 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 And so what um, uh, we have this event at uh, called the Time Travelers Ball is our big party at Combat Con on Saturday Mm -hmm. nights. And what I love about that is that that is the time when everybody comes and sees that they're all just passionate geeks about what they are. And at Mm -hmm. our core, that's our similarity. That's where we're all the same. And I don't care if you hit people with steel or plastic or plastic that lights up. Right. Like, you're just a sword geek, and that's cool if you've embraced that. I think that's a brilliant place to finish. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Jared. It's been great talking to you as always. Thank you. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jared. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. I'd like to thank the people who make the podcast possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit a long time ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Marley Vlock, who is a virologist, a historical martial arts instructor, and historical flag waver, and we'll get into exactly what that means in the interview. She was also a competitive target shooter who represented South Africa for a decade. Make sure you don't miss that. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. And most importantly, of course, share the podcast far and wide. Tell everyone you think might enjoy it all about it so they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. And I will see you soon. (laughs) 